Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who make us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. My guest this week is Oscar Salguero, who is founder and CEO of the Interspecies Library in New York, which is the first archive dedicated to the curation and advancement of artists' books that focus on alternative interspecies futures. So the Interspecies Library is all about speculative futures when it comes to human and non-human interactions. But despite being speculative, many of the books point towards our contemporary reality through the use of metaphors, stories, and artistic imaginings. As Oscar points out, some of the books are extreme and fantastical ideas of interspecies relations, but all of them provoke discussion around things such as the unsustainable human consumption of meat, animal testing, hunting for ivory animal horns, or ancient traditional uses of animals, such as the Chinese tradition of eating a tiger's penis to enhance male virility and sexual prowess. Oscar gives details of how this tradition and others are being challenged and rethought through advancing technological or bioscientific ideas. In this episode, we discuss the complex interspecies relationships that exist between humans and non-humans. The fact that humans have a complete reliance on other animals, be it through food, medicine and scientific discoveries, but with growing awareness of the climate crisis and the unsustainable human behaviours which are causing species to suffer and even to go extinct, we're forced to address our exploitation of other species. So, for the first time in history, the idea of the all-powerful, evolved, advanced human is being destabilised and challenged. We live in an anthropocentric world, or a human-centric world, that will not survive unless we commit to becoming post-anthropocentric. Post-anthropocentrism rethinks the assumption that humans are at the top of the hierarchy of species, and instead talks about how humans are damaging their natural surroundings, should be prioritizing care for other species, and generally recognizing our interdependence. As Oscar states, it's painful and confusing for humans to be confronted with these facts, but it's a necessary step towards whatever evolution this planet and humans need to take. Here we discuss specific books Oscar has in the library, which are listed in the show notes. Some outline the multiple human uses of every single part of a pig's body, the monkeys used as experimental astronauts to see if primates could survive in space, and the use of horseshoe crabs for life-saving medicine. All of those are not speculative, they're real, but the authors draw upon these instances to shine a light on our complete dependence on other species, but our simultaneous abuse of them. We also discuss the role of 3D printing when it comes to potentially creating organs and rhino horns. In this episode, there's a moment where we talk about pig organ transplants and I state that humans are having them. And a correction to that statement is that, well, humans are having them, but they only work for a limited time period. There has been a transplant made of a pig kidney to a brain-dead man who donated his body to science. The kidney successfully functioned for two full months, keeping his body alive, which is the longest documented case of its kind. Also in 2023, scientists reported that a kidney transplanted from a genetically engineered miniature pig 
kept a monkey alive for more than two years. So this survival time is one of the longest for any interspecies transplant and moves pig organs closer to human use. I've actually put more links in the show notes about these experiments and discoveries if you wanted to know more. It was exciting to talk to Oscar about the potential of interspecies relationships and what the future holds. The Interspecies Library is a passion project for him, so he is an independent researcher and archivist building this one-of-a-kind library, which operates as a physical space but also as a catalogue online. So please do go and have a look at it. You can find it at intospecieslibrary.com. After my conversation with Oscar, he told me he feels completely compelled to collect these books and says that he feels a responsibility or a calling to collect and document these historical artefacts. So it was wonderful to speak with someone so passionate about these topics. I hope you enjoy listening. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you so much for coming on Bodies in the Post. I'm super excited to be talking to you all the way from New York on your morning, my afternoon. So I really appreciate you joining me. How long have you lived in New York for again? Yeah, first of all, thanks for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to talk to you, especially about this subject that's very close to me. I've been in New York since 2012. So just over 10 years. Exactly, yeah. And where where were you before then? Before that, I was in Tokyo for a summer. I was interning at a design studio called Studio Nendo in Japan. And right before that, I graduated from school. I went to industrial design school in Southwest Virginia at Virginia Tech. And then that's how that's how it all started. As soon as I graduated, I went to a big, big city, Tokyo, and then I had to come back to the States and settled in New York. So what drew you to Tokyo? Honestly, I really wanted to try something, a culture that I've never had access to. You know, there is a lot of information about Japanese culture online, through books, and I just wanted to experience it myself. There was a clash that for me was very exciting at the time, a clash of, I would say, cultures. And for example, in Japan, or at least in Tokyo, they would have a maximalist aesthetic. There is maximalist and minimalist, right? You go to a normal grocery store, everything is a, a bombardment of information, labels, graphics, characters. I think of even Tokyo being like that in terms of the streets. Oh, yes. With lights and buildings and advertisements. and Everything is an explosion of creativity, imagination, expression. And then that's when I fell in love with cities, really huge cities, you know. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Lima, Peru, also the largest city in Peru. I guess I am an urban kind of person. I really enjoy this idea of everyone living in these houses, concrete, everywhere but then there's subcultures everywhere you know soccer fans or the gaming culture guys you know music scene just there's all of these subcultures happening simultaneously there's cross-contamination between them and I just enjoy that enjoy this multiplicity of expression that's super interesting that you just said about cross-pollination and what a great segue <laughs> that is to kind of talking about interspecies. Yeah. I feel like also when you were just talking then about, you know, cities and the busyness, it made me think how it's interesting that you're so focused in your work around nature, but it's such a sort of future forward form of nature. So it's sort of mixed with advancing technological ideas or advancing biomedical ideas, which come with, you know, busy urban life in a sense. And that kind advancing contemporary society that we live in whilst it's also very much grounded in earthly nature yeah 
So you're the founder and creator of the Interspecies Library, which is the first archive dedicated to the curation and advancement of artists' books that focus on alternative interspecies possibilities. I stole that from your website because I feel like you put it better than anyone else could. And I wondered, first of all, if you could tell us what you mean by alternative interspecies possibilities. Yeah, that's a good. It's great that you mentioned first my experience in the city in an urban environment, because I would say even when I when I was in Japan, I started noticing things that maybe in my culture were obvious to me in Peru or even in, in the United States, uh, our relationship with animals in an urban environment. So when I was there, I noticed there were a lot of cats on the streets and people treat them specially. They leave food for them. They have a relationship with the community cats. And there's also a crow. In Japan, there's a, a lot of them, especially in big city like Tokyo. They're all everywhere. These big black birds that I'd never seen before in my life. They're a little aggressive. They, they take garbage, food that's all over the place, you know. Scavengers. Exactly. So that made me curious. There is a book, it's not Crow, but it's called Raven. It's a Japanese book, a photo book, and it's just a photographer following this phenomenon of these animals. And it's considered one of the most beautiful photo books in history. So right around that time, I was already paying attention to this connection of artists, creative people, photographers, anyone that are looking at a relationship with animals in an urban environment and how they're translating that into books or a way to start into a storytelling about that. So I started uh, paying attention to books. I started paying attention to our, our relationship with animals in the city. And so that is on one hand. On the other hand, as I was also studying industrial design in the university at Virginia Tech, and, you know, I was learning more, a lot about the subject, of course, but I was more intrigued about the alternative side of industrial design. And a lot of that actually comes from England. There is a There was a program at the time, Design Interactions at the Royal College of Art, with Fiona Raby and Anthony Dune, and they were implementing this way of challenging traditional the traditional design field by implementing more criticality. So looking at the industry from within. So try to understand how we're using materials or using methods, technologies that maybe can be detrimental to us and to other species. So that's when I started paying attention. And now there's creative fields that are dealing constantly with new technologies, biotechnology, paying attention to what we're doing to ourselves, to nature, to other species. And then it somehow clicked, right? I was realizing that we're entering, especially in this century, we're, ent we're entering a moment all of these concerns are converging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're being manifested in ways that they were not manifested before because there was not this consciousness. Yes. They also talk about that in posthumanism, where they say like the posthuman condition that we all find ourselves in, like there's no human on earth, no matter what environment they live in, who is devoid of this condition that we're living in, that we've created through, you know, advancing technology. But they say that the posthuman condition is about our closeness and proximity to technology, but our simultaneous closeness and proximity to other species. So it's this colliding of interacting with humans, technology, other species, and, you know, everything that intermingles with that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's something that I even didn't know about this, this term, posthumanism. I wasn't really reading those books at the time. It was just uh, an intuition, just what I was observing. They don't talk about this subject in design school, especially at that time. Not yet. Yeah, uh, it's more of a, you know, it was an ongoing field of research and study, of course, at the time, but it was not really talked about so much in creative fields, but many artists were already implementing that maybe intuitively. 
Well, no, exactly. I think that's what I'm so fascinated by is that post-human theory and philosophy exists, but it's this synchronicity of ideas and things that kind of are bubbling up all at the same time because of the condition we're in, that artists are spotting, thinkers thinkers and theorists are spotting, and either writing about it or creating stuff about it. But it's all happening kind of at the same time. So it's more of like a movement rather than an agreed, you know, let's link this to post-human theory or let's do this. It's just happening. It's almost like it's automatic it's organic yes it's absolutely organic and even i myself somehow i ended up as you as you mentioned starting this archive i could have never guessed that i would be someone doing that but it just happened that way so you created the interspecies library which you also call an archive because you've collected these books over time now which are all about different species and different speculative exactly futures that's what you talk about exactly yes so yeah why do i call it alternative interspecies possibilities so that's where this this concept of posthumanism and emerging technologies and how all of these elements sort of interfere with our relationship with other species, especially in 21st century. And I think these artists are expressing these concerns by creating these books. They are really touched and they're really sometimes even a little bit confused or they are concerned about the condition we're in, about the condition we're in and what that means for our relationship with other beings. So as a consequence, they're creating these documents. When you talk about the books specifically, because sometimes you call them artists, I wonder also if they're authors, a bit of both, and they're creating books which are kind of fictional. They're, they're very much focused on possibilities and ways in which in the future interspecies relationships can positively help the environment. Yeah, so I would say that the way they're looking at our relationship with other animals, I call it alternative because maybe they offer... They offer to focus on things that we haven't considered. For example, collaboration with other species, communication with other species, or even attempting to view the world from their perspective. So all, all of this is what it's doing is trying to get us closer to acknowledging that there are other ways to see the world, other ways of being, other ways of perceiving. And what that does in the end is kind of humble us, right? Because we're, as a species, we've always believed we're the supreme species. Yes, and anthropocentrism, that's what it's called, isn't it? This idea of exactly man at the top of this species hierarchy. Yeah, you, you can picture the, a lot of these diagrams where the man is at the top of, you know, the evolution of all species, walking forward. From, from ape. Yeah, like we're heading to something and we're this transcendental species. Everything was converged so that we, we manifested and this is the end goal of, you know, of life on this planet. Yeah, it's so arrogant, isn't it? If you think about it. And there's quite a lot of humanist texts and humanist philosophers in particular that talk about this idea of the man being the human. And they really privileged the, particularly the male body was the kind of top of the hierarchy. And it, it was this separation between mind and body. The body was like a vessel for the mind but the body was sealed from the outside world when obviously in reality we have a completely sort of porous relationship with our surroundings and with other species we're constantly interacting with them not only eating animals and plants but also you know all of our skin sheds our hair sheds we shit we piss we die eventually we're constantly interacting with our environment and with other species it's a constant constant process yes which is what kind of a lot of your texts i think are drawing on isn't it in a way it's almost like they're drawing on something that's already happening Mm -hmm. but they're making it they're almost like making it into a metaphor or they're shedding light on it by creating it into something some kind of story or would you agree with that 
I absolutely agree. Yeah, that is a really good way to put it. Especially, in fact, um, I had an opportunity to present a selection of these books at a show that I called Interspecies Futures. Ah, uh, yes, I saw this on your Instagram page. Yes, it was at the Center for Book Arts, and I had the chance also to publish a little catalog for the exhibition. And one of the opening paragraphs is where I basically say that the story of humankind is one of interspecies relationships. From the very first, I mean, what they consider to be the first drawings by humans are basically us with animals. Is humans with ox? Yeah, that's so true. And in fact, I, I, I remember the paragraph that I opened with is... Um, Do you remember it word for word? Not almost word for word, but the, but the concept is that 45,000 years ago, you know, that's what we are dating those drawings in the caves of Indonesia, where there's humans interacting with animals. And then you go all the way to the present. At the time when I wrote this was 2021. So there was a lot of news about uh, Elon Musk implanting chips in the brain of a pig. It's always a pig, isn't it? I feel a bit sorry for the pigs. They're always at the go-to. <laughs> I know. And speaking of pigs, for example, there's one book called Pig 05049. One of the books that I have here in the collection in the library. It's a book by Christian Main Dertsma. She's a Dutch designer, researcher. And for example, that was her thesis project. And the idea was to create an encyclopedia of what happens to a single pig, you know, that is slaughtered. And then all of its parts end up being the components of products that we use every day, from a cigarette to a book. No way. To uh, uh, leather medicine so there's pig products in books and cigarettes yeah if i remember correctly it has to do with what do you call that what they use for the glue in the book binding oh okay the adhesive yeah yeah the adhesive it comes from um what do you call this part of the pig like the bone marrow no it's, like the, it's the gel it's not the collagen gelatin it's escaping me right now but it's every part of the pig so the, in the book is divided by bone meat uh skin so by the parts of the pig that end up becoming uh, ingredients in all of these products that you use every day. Yeah. And I mean, you can have a pig organ transplant now. Yes. And they test they test that quite a lot. I think that it's probably always a pig because they're quite similar to us, which I find yeah. ironic because a lot of the kind of images of evolution are to do with us with monkeys or apes, which look more similar to us than a pig. So that alone, yeah, that alone can be an entire... Another entire research book, you know, our relationship with pigs. This is an interspecies relationship that is ancient and it's ongoing. There's mm. also another book about, for example, our relationship with, with monkeys or apes. Uh, it's called Ape Culture. It was released recently, I believe maybe four years ago. And it talks about how we're using the image of the ape in popular films or pop culture. And this brings me back to the very first time that I presented this collection of books. It was actually in 2020. So it was in January 2020. I call it Human Non-Human, a selection of 10 books on interspecies relationships. And it was held in my apartment here in, uh, in Brooklyn. That's when I was getting more serious about, you know, I already had this collection and I needed a way to present it. So my wife really pushed me to do an open, like an open house sort of thing. And we put the books together and everything. And one of the books that I picked was called Space Monkey. So it's a book. It's actually hard to find. It's from the 60s. And it's about the first monkey that was sent to outer space by the United States. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. 
I mean, it was a long time ago, but it died in space, didn't it? It was a sort of suicide mission. There was there were two. The male one died, but then they sent a female one, and she survived. She made it back. Ah, strong female monkey. Yes, and you know what's interesting <laughs> is that I was telling you I'm from Peru, and I in this book they tell the story of the monkey. Her name is Miss Baker. And they found her in the jungles of Peru. And she was a squirrel monkey. And she became this national hero at the time. You know, the first living being sent from the United States to outer space that made it back alive. And they turned that into a book. And they hired Olivia Burt, I believe is her name, children book writer, to create this book. And they were making the monkey appear as if he was meant to do this activity and become this hero to the aeronautics. Like it was fate. Yeah, that's his fate. So it's also interesting to revisit books from an interspecies perspective from that era where patriotism and things like that were more more important. Yeah, I mean, they didn't, obviously it goes without saying that there's no consent from the animals that do exactly. these things and the amount of animals that we use for work internationally. But at the same, in the same breath, there's lots of things that we wouldn't have been able to do without them. So obviously there's kind of horrible amounts of labour that come into that. But getting, you know, using animals for experimentation where it's cruel or sending animals up to space. I just feel like it's a it's a very tricky grey area of consent, isn't it? Because the animals can't give their consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And humans kind of constantly endeavour, you know, this anthropocentric approach to let's go to space. And right now with Elon Musk, let's go to Mars. They'll probably send a monkey there at some point. <laughs> uh, probably, probably. Yeah. If not, they've already done it. Yeah. I wondered if you could give us some other examples of your favorite books that you have, the interspecies books in your library. I can tell you about Pink Chicken Project. That's an interesting one. So we were talking about what these artists are doing is also creating awareness for things that we take for granted. For example, our consumption of chicken. That's across cultures. You know, we consume, I don't know, billions of chickens a year. I always think when of sort of KFC and the amount of chickens or McDonald's, the amount of chickens they must get through in a day. It's insane. Yeah. And what we're what we've been doing is these farms are generating chickens and they're being treated biotechnologically, right? To enhance the their growth, accelerate their growth so they have more meat and so on. Some steroids. Yeah, it, they're they're enhanced. They do that with cows, don't they, as well? Exactly. Yeah, so it's it's a function, right, that they're creating for them. So what these artists, they're called non-human nonsense. They're from Sweden. What they did is they started imagining how the chicken can become a a symbol for the Anthropocene, especially in a long-term, sort of a deep-time sense, in tens of thousands of years into the future. How does a single species, the chicken, signal our involvement and influence on the global ecology? So what they decided to do is they collaborated with some scientists and came to this idea of using a gene drive, which is a a way to alter the genetics of the chicken so that they can turn their bones into pink color, their feathers, their bones. So what happens if these animals suddenly, their bones are a specific pink color? And furthermore, what happens if after something like 14 generations, if all chickens are carrying these genetics, they can all turn into pink. And then in the future, their bones can become this evidence on the geological strata of the earth. So future archaeologists will be encountering this like pink bones, pink matter. And so that was the concept. It's a really crazy concept. (laughs) And I challenged them to uh, create a book for the show that I had in 2021. 
So they collaborated with a book designer, Claudia de la Torre. She's in, based in Berlin. They're all based in Berlin too, non-human nonsense. They met up and they created this beautiful book that is, it looks like a, a rock. I mean, like a slab, like a stone. It's all gray and it has a fossilized chicken embossed in the cover, a pink chicken. So creative. I love it. It's really fascinating. And it also has a little flip book. So when you flip through the entire book, it is from a baby chicken to an adult chicken and they're all pink. So it's kind of fun, but it's also, it's at once critical, highly critical, but also approachable, very um accessible even a, a kid accessible yeah even a kid can kind of be like oh that's cute what and then the question comes why is the chicken pink it's a way to get people involved in it in a kind of non-scientific way to not make it too heavy or sort of dry yes but at the same time i guess there would be vegans out there who would be like you're kind of making this into a bit of a joke or mm. you're creating this into something funny when when it's not funny well, that's true. And what I find interesting is that there's a whole section in the middle of the book where they printed all of the social media uh, reaction to this project. Oh, really? Did they get a lot of abuse? Yes. A lot of hate. A lot of hate. A lot of the vomiting emoji. Oh, yeah. Trolls love that emoji. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes, there's a lot of reactions. There's a lot of emotional reactions, moral reactions to these projects. And perhaps that's the point, right? To stir up this uh, status quo, these uh, things that we take for granted. And maybe like the example I gave you of a kid, maybe ask why. And that why can open up a lot of maybe uncomfortable answers. Another interesting example from this uh, interspecies library is the Tiger Penis Project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that one's actually from 2018. The artist, his name is Kwang Yiku. He's a Taiwanese artist, a former dentist who uh, moved to the Netherlands to study in this program and really became what is known as a bio-artist. So bio-artist is someone who's uh, using living matter or genetics as a medium as a way to also produce artistic concepts or proposals. Yeah, this is something that has been happening since the 90s when biotechnology started advancing, the cloning of animals became a, a serious matter. So Kwang Yiku, fast forward to 2018, Kwang Yiku coming from uh, Taiwan and a culture where they have something known as traditional Chinese medicine, uh, which involves the uh, killing of exotic animals to retrieve certain organs, certain parts of the animals for the use of this medicine, right? that is deeply ingrained in their culture for centuries. So tiger penis is used as an aphrodisiac or as an ingredient for medicine that increases the virility in men, right? I see. So why a tiger penis and not an elephant penis? That's a good question. I, I don't have the answer, but... <laughs> is there something about the tiger that's particularly virile? Yeah, and also, you know, in the Chinese have a certain interest in animals, even as metaphors for different things. You know, they have the, the calendar. Every year is assigned to a specific animal. Yeah. From now until... I think thousands of years into the future, right? So it's a system. It's almost an algorithm, the way it works. Yeah, <laughs> so true. So what do they do? What did they do with the tiger's penis? Would they chop off the tiger's penis and, or how would they approach it? How does one approach a tiger's penis? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember exactly how they, if they make a concoction or if they... Use the sperm? Present it in a specific way or if they dry it up. But the, the concept itself focuses on the idea that what if instead of killing these animals, we are able to bioprint, 3D bioprint the organs. So what he's proposing, Kwang Yiku, is modernizing this. You don't have to get rid of this tradition or these beliefs, but at the same time, 
then you don't have to kill animals for the purpose of that. Mm. Which I guess is uh, similar to what's happening with Impossible Burger and all of these kind of this trend of instead of pigs, replace that with... Oh, yeah. Right? Lab-grown meat. Lab-grown meat, in vitro meat, yeah. I see what you mean, yeah. So Tiger Brain's project is really a project that focuses on that aspect. And for me, this is another example of an artistic approach opening up very interesting questions. Mm. Well, I've just had a quick Google. Yes. The penis of the tiger, it was consumed. So you're right. It was sort of dried out and then consumed yeah. or eaten by whoever wanted to eat it. And it was said to be a potent aphrodisiac and also an effective treatment for erectile dysfunction. And obviously it follows with there is no scientific evidence to support this. Yes. But clearly, if this is a kind of ancient tradition that was happening for, you know, centuries or however long. So the Tiger Penis Project is about recreating a tiger penis in a ethical way yeah it's about it's about maintaining these traditions right these practices that are ancient so you don't impact the practices but you just change the material that you're using right and what do they make the penises out of the new ones so this can be made with cells of the animal i see lab grown as well as you're saying and maybe bioprinted which is it's a concept i don't know if you've seen that they're already printing some organs organelles in laboratory to replace to transplant to humans yeah this is a very emerging field as well you know forgive my ignorance here but a lot of the interspecies library is about sort of speculative futures and ideas rather than actually what can happen it's about you know what could happen so with the organs the 3d printed organs i feel like there would have been more press if they worked right if the organs were actually functioning organs but obviously the, the idea is there that they're like one day we might be able to print 3d printed organs that would save a lot of people mm-hmm. well so are they printing kind of like fake hearts at the moment to just make a point and be like look we can create because otherwise it's just a lump isn't it i believe they're already printing things that are functional like lungs no way oh my god yes and also another as an example as well 3d printing rhino horns so in fact there was a company that came out and it was a startup focusing on 3d printing the horns because those are also valuable to certain cultures yeah that's super interesting though isn't it because i guess it's like it's kind of the argument about originality then isn't it because Mm -hmm. it's a bit like an original artwork or a copy of an artwork if the rhino horn is the copy of a rhino horn a 3d printed rhino horn then does it lose its value i'm guessing it probably does for the people that are desperate for a rhino horn i think they're desperate for an original real rhino horn right but i think what it does is alleviate some demand right maybe there'll be something more accessible in terms of cost and more people can yeah can benefit from that i was i recently visited the hall of gems and stones at the american museum of natural history and there was a section where they're talking about synthetic the creation of synthetic minerals back in the 1800s already oh wow or early 1900s hundreds yeah and so there is a history of the creation of synthetic trying to recreate natural things i was thinking you know it's almost like they're just creating fakes like people do with fake handbags and circulating fakes trying to convince people they're not fake oh yeah yeah. and i guess it also makes me think of like fur the use of fur in fashion which has since the peter campaign that got really popular in the sort of late 90s or mid to late 90s with loads of celebrities being involved That campaign was super successful because loads of fur factories shut down. It's now not cool in any sense to have real fur on the catwalk. I think some fashion designers still do, but it's very much more rare than it used to be. It used to be that it was just, you know, a luxury item. But Stella McCartney has been making lab-grown fur and developing this Mm -hmm. idea of lab-grown fur. 
And there's this big argument around it saying, in one sense, we could move towards seeing fur as just another texture, another kind of textiles. But there's the other side saying, is this not perpetuating the want for fur? Because it maintains the fashionability of fur and the look of fur. So then it maintains fur being sold and, you know, real fur being sold. I mean, obviously, it's a big old ethical debate. And whenever animals come into Mm. things, it's always going to be an ethical debate. But with the sort of printed rhino horns or the recreated tiger penis, it's like, is it still perpetuating the same problem that we have? Like, should in a post-anthropocentric society, should we move away from an ethical use of animals completely? or, Or do you think that's impossible? I don't think it's impossible. And I think what these projects that you mentioned, what they're doing is is creating a transition phase. A bit like the Beyond Meat as well, Beyond Meat burgers. Yes, they're opening up the conversation, making it mainstream. So whereas before it wasn't even a question, now it's a questionable thing. Mm. Or now there's doubt or now there's people saying, yeah, I've been willingly participating in this for so long. Maybe I'm not that interested anymore in, in being part of this. You know? Yeah. So it's it's creating it's a seed of doubt, but it's a it's a good kind of doubt. It's a necessary step, even if it's not perfect yet. I agree. And I think that's what I think with Stella McCartney's lab grown fur is that it's definitely a step in the right direction. And with the Beyond Meat burgers, I feel like that brand, they're not really aiming for vegetarians because vegetarians have already got it sussed and they're already non-meat eaters. What they're Mm -hmm. actually doing is targeting meat eaters and almost finding a way of converting them to make them realise, oh, it's actually delicious and maybe I don't need to eat meat. So it is, you're right, it's a stepping stone, isn't it? Yes. To other ideas. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes and take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. The other book I wanted to ask you about was a book called After Man. Yes. Yeah. So After Man is an interesting one because it came out in 1981 by a geologist and scientist, Dougal Dixon, who's from Scotland. At the time, you know, in like the 70s, there was a lot of campaigns about our treatment of animals, like stop killing whales, things like that. And what Dougal Dixon asked himself is instead of saying, oh, yeah, poor whales, what's going to happen to them? He went the, the other way, the other extreme. He went, what if we are also at some point go as a species, we go extinct? What happens after we are gone? The humans disappear. So he's talking millions of years. So this project was a way for him to create a hypothetical. What would this world look like without us? And so Dougal imagined over a hundred species that would manifest or evolve 40 million years into the future and a planet that is no longer looking the same as we have it now. The landmass is shifting around, so the continents look different. And what's interesting about this book is it's very highly illustrated and it's presented as a natural field guide of this far future. Lots of different characteristics like the species like in the wild, the location you can find it. So it's presented almost like a fact, a factual guide, an authoritative guide on animals that are all in his imagination, but that are following accepted norms of evolution. Mm. So it's a really fascinating exercise. And this is what started a whole movement called speculative zoology. This is almost a genre in its own, where scientists and artists team up and try to uh, imagine this the evolution of species if certain conditions are not the same in the future. Mm. In 88, Dougal Dixon published another book called The New Dinosaurs, An Alternative Evolution. Are they pink chickens? 
No, no. <laughs> Actually, this one is interesting because artists imagines what would have happened if the global extinction of dinosaurs never happened, you know, with that event, the meteorite, mm-hmm. the accepted theory, right? So this book is very important uh, to me. It's very important because it's an early example of what happens when, in this case, a scientist teams up with an, an artist and develop this world-building thesis. I've seen so many scientists and artists citing this book as an inspiration, yeah. The one called After Man makes me think of, there's a post-human philosopher who's called Patricia McCormack. She's very like punky and rebellious looking, I guess, stereotypically sort of rebellious looking. Mm -hmm. She's written a manifesto called A Human, all one word, A Human. And she's basically saying in a very philosophical way that humans have sort of fucked up the planet so much. We've ruined the planet so much that we now need to accept our fate and stop reproducing and give nature a chance because the existence of earth is not about us and because we're destroying it we need to basically not kill ourselves but die out and she said that is the only way that nature will survive this and if we don't do Mm. that then it'll be a much more disastrous end for us and the world Mm -hmm. so that's her approach which is it's regarded as a very extreme post-human approach Mm -hmm. and a lot of post-humanists disagree with her and say you know there's a lack of positivity about this and about the fact that humans and technology can work with other species to create something that is more ethical and sustainable it's just about if we choose to do it basically and if we all collaboratively do it together because it takes all of us doesn't it yeah that's a great example also because what i'm trying to do with this project with interspecies library is not only showing you a specific kind of books but also a variety a whole scope of proposals ways of thinking about other species some are extreme some are a little bit fantastical some are very close Another thing I thought was super interesting that you've talked about before is this this overlap with the concept of monsters and how symbolic and important the introduction of the microscope was within science and how that opened up our whole perception of, of other species and what we're actually surrounded by in the world that we didn't know about previously. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I think that might have been from a particular book that you were talking about. I thought it was a really interesting way of connecting interspecies relationships and also this idea of monstrosity. Oh, yes. So this is a book called Micrographia, published in 1665 by uh, Robert Hooke. 1665? Oh, yeah. Quite old. Is that when the microscope was introduced then? Yes, this book is very important because it's the first one that showcases illustrations that derive from the observations of the of the author who created the first microscope, Robert Hooke. So in this book, he draws what he's observing. And one of the uh, most famous foldouts is one of a flea. So he draws this flea in profile. Nobody had ever seen an insect that tiny at this scale. He blew it up in a gigantic format. It's quite large and in full detail you can see the little hairs in the the limbs of the flea all these scales probably looks absolutely terrifying it looks really terrifying yeah so you can imagine it in that era opening this book and seeing that it really looks like a monster right it really looks like a monster, but the contribution of this book is is, is huge. I mean, it really showed that there is a, a micro world. Full of monsters. Full of these little critters that are quite fascinating. And actually, at that time, there was a huge plague caused by the flea. It was in London. From fleas? Yeah. Oh my God, I thought there was a big plague that was from rats. 
Oh yeah, it was the Great Plague of 1665, the Black Death. Oh, it's the Black Death. I thought it was from rats. I didn't realise it was from the fleas probably on the rats. Yes, it was the fleas on the rats. Yeah, I remember it being rats because apparently at first they were worried it was all the stray cats. Oh yeah. So they killed all the stray cats, but that made yes. it worse because the cats were previously eating the rats. Eating rats, <laughs> yeah. So yes, it was, it was later discovered that it was the fleas. So now you, even the significance of this book is even greater because... It was a monster that killed loads of people, yeah. It shows you this agent, right? This organism that is imperceptible unless you have this tool, this new tool, which is a microscope. So, but this idea of monsters is really interesting because we have this tendency historically since earlier times to catalog something, the unknown or something that we, we don't understand or we don't have full access to beings or organisms as monsters, right? Yeah. There's a whole history. It's called teratology, isn't it? Teratology is the, hist the history of monsters. Yes. And it was considered scientific fact, but it very much bridged fact and fantasy. Yes. Because a lot of it was made up. But then it was also documenting maybe children born with certain defects or an extra limb or Siamese twins. So it was documenting actual bodies mm -hmm. that were considered monstrous. And at the same time, it was also talking about mythical beasts and fake creatures that were, you know, fantasies made up. Oh, yeah. And cataloguing them also as monsters. So it was this weird time of crossover between the imagination and science. Yes, and if you can recall a lot of the older maps uh, of the world by Europeans, they would put maybe uh, dragons or yeah. monsters in places they haven't really explored yet, right? Yeah, or they'd, they'd be these explorers, weren't they, who'd go over to another country and see a rhino, a rhinoceros for the first time ever, which probably did seem like a monster when you're not familiar with it. Yes. But then they would draw it and exaggerate it. Yeah. So there's loads of images uh, that are drawn from that period of sort of colonialism, I would guess, and people going and discovering new lands that exaggerate the real creatures, meaning that they end up looking like these monstrous mythical beasts. And that's all linked with the teratology, the history of monstrosity as well. Yeah, and then there's also something called cryptozoology. Cryptozoology. Cryptozoology is more Bigfoot, the Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, all of these creatures that, you know, become, there's some sightings, you know, oh, in some village, they've been seeing these animals or these creatures that they have, they're very mysterious and they, they become these folk tales. And that, that's actually a field called cryptozoology, which is the study of these unknown creatures. So we have a very strong history of assigning labels or even monstrosity to uh, organisms that we, we don't understand, we don't quite perceive fully. Mm. And you can even go to films, right? Like the film Alien. Yeah. It's really a play on that. There's actually an interview with the, script, the writer of this screenplay. And he mentions that really Alien is an interspecies rape story. Ah. Oh, yeah. So he uses that term. Yeah, because she gets impregnated by the alien, doesn't she? Yes. Fear of interspecies rape. For me, it was fascinating when I, when I found that he used that term. It manifests, you know, the mouth of the alien is, look, it looks like a... a penis. It's phallic, but it also looks like a vagina when it opens. It has an, a certain type of opening that is really... Yeah. Alien is such a great film to watch in terms of thinking about these post-human ideas of oh, yeah. merging with other species, merging with future bodies and merging with technology. Because a lot of the alien, the sort of tentacles and the tubes and wires that are all over the spaceship in that film... Mm -hmm. Yes. ...make you, you connect them to each other in terms of the alien is almost like this technologized being and then later in like in the sequels you realize that they are technologized mm. 
And I was going to talk about that actually with the with monsters and this idea that you look through a microscope and you see monsters through a microscope. People were going to other lands and seeing rhinoceroses and thinking they were monsters. And then now you can grow things in a lab using sort of technology or advanced chemical sort of biomedical pharmaceutical engineering, which will create beings and these crossovers. You know, they've managed to grow an ear on a mouse and, you know, deform creatures through this use of technology. So there's these sort of future monsters now, these futuristic monsters that connect to our deep, deep fear of what monstrosity is. Yeah, yeah, this is a very, it's a very confusing century, I think. <laughs> it's very confusing. But that's like interspecies at its prime, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Because mixing substances in a lab that have come from plants or animals. Yes, there is at once a lot of projects happening around the world pushing the boundaries of what life means, right? What life can be, you know, things that are happening at laboratory level, mm. biotechnological uh, level, but also at once a lot of, how do you say, confusion about where we're heading. Yeah. And this is across the globe, politically, in terms of belief, religion, which is also creating a new emergence of mysticism, animism, these waves of sort of a new type of belief in things that are that we can control. Mm. which is another area that I'm very interested in. You know, there's a, there's some artists looking at a relationship with fantastical creatures, a relationship with, for example, the cosmovision of indigenous communities, you know, where they regard animals with certain spirit or certain abilities that we don't have. So it's really a reason why I think it's very important to continue pushing this project forward, this interspecies library, mm. because I think a lot of fields of study and a lot of concerns and a lot of questions are converging. And at the core is this idea of the concept of the human is destabilizing. I mean, it's being destabilized and challenged. Yeah. Maybe for the first time since our origin. A hundred percent. And it's important that that happens and it's painful. It's going to be painful. It's going to be confusing. And some people it's, won't accept it. They won't, they won't accept it. Mm. And I think it's a necessary step into whatever happens, you know, whichever way this planet evolves. It was a necessary step that was going to happen at some point, but it's happening now. Yeah, completely. And it's also about the fact that we completely depend on and rely on other species. And at the same time, simultaneously, we completely abuse them. And that's the complicated issue. And that's part of the post-human condition is that we need to deal with. It's like, because we're so dependent on it, how do we find new ways of living with it and moving away from that dependence so we're not abusive of it? The thing that comes to mind whilst we're talking about this is those, you know, horseshoe crabs. Yes. Yeah. And they basically are farmed. These blue, these crabs, well, they're not blue in color. I think they're sort of gray in color, but they have blue blood mm -hmm. and their blood can be used in certain, am I right in saying antibiotics? Mm -hmm. Because their blood, I'm just having a quick look up. Horseshoe crab blood is bright blue. It contains important immune cells that are exceptionally sensitive to toxic bacteria. When those cells meet invading bacteria, they clot around it and protect the rest of the horseshoe crab's body from toxins. So they, they found a way of using this blood of this crab and putting it into medicines. 
And a lot of this stuff is hidden from us, but there are these crab farms and the crabs have to be alive when they're draining the blood. Mm -hmm. They can't be already dead, I think. So they, they're draining the blood from these living crabs in these massive farms. That, and this is going on all the time. And that's just, I mean, the tip of the iceberg of how much we abuse animals, of course. Mm. But we're now, it's in all our drugs. You know, we're so dependent on these chemicals and these ways of living. And it almost sounds mythical, like taking bright blue blood from a crab and it'll heal you. Mm -hmm. And going back to that Chinese herbal re remedy, you know, the fact that a lot of Western medicine will see that that's all kind of ridiculous. But Western medicine itself comes from plants and animals and the mixing of substances. Yeah, It's the same thing, essentially. It's just used in a different way. But the blue blood from the crab farming really blew my mind when I found out about it because I had no idea it was happening. Oh, yeah. And it's just like the, it's the epitome of that anthropocentric approach, isn't it? These animals can have this blood which we can use that will help us. But meanwhile, we have to kill them, bleed them alive. Yeah. At the same time, that brings me to another book, which is Lynn Aleva Lilly. She's a photographer from the United States, and she dedicated an entire book to the horseshoe crab. Oh, wow. And it's fantastic. It's almost like an ode to the horseshoe crab. And the title of the book is Deep Time. And she spent uh, a long time with them in Delaware. And the book goes through sort of like a life cycle of horseshoe crab. And it captures them in ways that you would have never imagined. For example, the horseshoe crab has 10 eyes. And it's, it has an incredible perception of the way the moon, like the moon has a big influence in the way they breathe, the way they conceive. They have a beautiful relationship with that. And then also they make really beautiful movements on the sand they're a fantastic creature really beautiful very um misunderstood really ancient deeply ancient creatures mm. and this book is just so beautiful i really recommend to anyone amazing because she's as a photographer she captured it from a perspective that is really empathetic so she was taking pictures with the crabs oh yeah she took all the photos yes there's no humans in the book i mean there's one photo of her sister i think looking at one but then for the most part it's just horseshoe crab centric <laughs> it's beautiful Yeah, and that to me represents the opposition, right? We are, uh, how do you say, exploiting these animals, but at the same time, artists are the ones saying, uh, wait a minute, here's this creature, this incredible, perceives the world in ways we will never be able to, has been around here longer than we, than we have, and maybe will be. Let's take a moment and respect, respect them first, right? Yeah, be grateful, yeah. Be grateful, yeah. And appreciative of the fact that so many human lives would have been lost without them. So it's kind of weighing up the pros and cons of things. But it's like you say that I think artists shed light on and highlight how these are important issues that are taking place. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of unethical treatment of these animals taking place that's hidden from us. And I think artists are amazing at, at kind of bringing that to the fore in a way that doesn't feel too affront affronting. Yes, artists are great at creating that bridge between the, these complex issues and um, bridging it to our emotional uh, field, right? Yeah, making us relate. Making us relate, yes. And, and this is per perhaps the biggest reason why I focus on books, because I could be focusing on many other things like sculptures or collecting other things, you know, other expressions of this kind of art or this research. But I think books are very important in the sense that they are a very common artifact across different cultures, Yeah, across time. To me, it's maybe the most perfect medium that we have created as a species to communicate ideas to other humans. 
It has content. It has weight. Images. Images. It's very sensorial. It makes you stop and engage with it. As an artifact. Yeah, it's very tactile. As an artifact. It's very tactile. You get a lot of information out of it. Not just visually, but even smell, feeling. So these are the perfect artifacts to tell these stories, I believe. And they are accessible to a, a little kid, to an older person on an equal level. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Oscar, for coming on Bodies in the Post to chat with us about your interspecies library and archive. Where can people find your books or more information about you or if they live in New York, come and visit? Yes, definitely. So anyone that is around here in New York City, I'm in Brooklyn. Feel free to contact me, info at interspecieslibrary.com. And we can coordinate the time for you guys to come by, look at the books. I just had the first browsing session, I called them, uh, last week. Three young artists, researchers came and we spent a couple hours talking. Two of them already want to make a book as a consequence of this visit. And one of them, we're going to have an interview about the project. So it's really... The library is almost like the excuse, right? And people come in. Yeah, it inspires people. It inspires people because they're, they're noticing that what they are feeling right now is a, is a feeling that is happening globally with artists all over. They're also feeling that. They're feeling this need to tell these stories, to make the public aware about this subject, to challenge, to inspire, you know. So anybody is welcome to come physically, but also if you want to see more online, I have the, the website interspeciuslibrary.com, which is really an over, just mostly an overview of the project. My goal would be actually in the near future to catalog all the books, create an index, making most of them or at least a few of them fully accessible online. Where you can read the content, the essays, so that if you cannot physically be here, at least you, you can see all of this content and publications being produced. Mm. And yeah. that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's about generating these ideas and creating this inspiration because a lot of the big new creations and ideas come from, you know, things that have changed humankind in a really positive way and other species' lives in a positive way often comes from experimentation, transdisciplinarity and something new, something kind of original. So sparking the these books have the power in a sense to spark ideas and create something new. So for artists and thinkers and scientists alike, they're really important to propel us into new ways of thinking about interspecies. Absolutely. Yes, I, I believe that very much. And I'm just just hoping this project is a contribution to that. Well, I'm sure it will be. And I love what you're doing. And thank you so much for your time and for coming on Bodies in the Post. I really appreciate it. It was fantastic talking with you. Thank you so much, Lydia. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Oscar Salguero from the Interspecies Library. If you enjoyed listening, please follow the show for more episodes. 